Hello and welcome back to the Dynasty Crossroads. My name is Peter Howard at Pierre Howdy on Twitter. This is a member of the DLF family of podcasts, I think, still. I'm still unsure of the wording there. Um, by rights, this week should be another interview podcast, but because I had to delay the last one so long, because I suck, so I thought I'd just do a rundown of how effective ADP has been at rookies since 2014, according to DLF, and looking back at the history of what actually happened to those draft classes, um, and then look at 2023 rookie ADP before the draft to give you a sense of what we can know right now about this class, just to, as like a primer or something to listen to while the draft goes on, maybe. But before we do that, we actually have a word from DLF um, about the sponsor of the podcast. Let's go. Hey everyone, Ken Moody here from Dynasty League Football. Just letting you know that this podcast is sponsored by League Tycoon. If you play in a contract Dynasty League, or have ever thought about joining a contract league, but you are worried that it would be too much work, then you will want to check out League Tycoon. League Tycoon has perfected a platform for fantasy football salary cap and contract leagues. Leagues are super easy to set up, and they offer a ton of configuration and management options. League Tycoon's mobile app makes managing your team easy. In fact, their mobile app may be the best fantasy league mobile app in the industry. It's feature-rich, easy to navigate, and doesn't have a lot of distracting features to take away from the pure fantasy football experience. So go to LeagueTycoon.com to get more information and download the app. And if you use the promo code DLF when creating a league, your first year is absolutely free. League Tycoon makes Dynasty Contract Leagues easy and fun, and it will change the way you play fantasy football. That's LeagueTycoon.com. Go check them out. Okay, those were the silky smooth words of Ken Moody from DLF, which I resent having to put on this podcast because he sounds so silky and smooth, and now I'm reminded how nasally and unsmooth my voice sounds. Let's get back to the Dynasty Crossroads. Anyway, I want to tell you before we do that I'll be live streaming on both day one and day two. I'm live streaming with the Dat Network or the Dynasty Trades podcast and Russ Fisher through day one. I've asked him um, to uh, put those streams on my Twitch and my YouTube channel, which he has agreed to. We haven't fi figured out the technicalities yet because we're us. But you should be able to find them there. And on day two, I'm going to go on with uh, Zach Reed for the Dynasty Dummy podcast. Um, and I'm also going on uh, uh, FF Tyler's live stream at some point during day one as well. So, you know, keep an eye on the Twitter feed. I'll be everywhere. Or you can check out my YouTube channel or my Twitch channel um, to see, uh, you know, uh, what's going on there. I should be out. Like, I should be out and I keep pulling myself back in, in some kind of a reverse famous movie quote. This podcast has been recorded and was going to be on time, dang it. And then I came to title it. And obviously, the title was Great Draft Expectations, and while it uploaded, I immediately started thinking about what I was parodying there, the Great Expectations, a novel by Charles Dickens. And I was like, and the thought occurred to me, look, you're trying to make better, con or better content for you, content that you're more proud of, you put more work into, you're trying to bring together a variety of different interests that you actually have and infuse them in the same way that all the things I enjoy infuse my thought process in general, infuse them into what I principally enjoy, which is dynasty and fantasy football, 
And instead, you just made basically a reading of that article that you just wrote about ADP and how good and bad it is. And it bugged me. It bugged me. Um, because I am trying to do better content, even if it's for a smaller audience, although I don't know how it could get smaller, frankly. <laughs> great Expectations. I would love to do a rendition of Great Expectations and somehow through literary theory combine it with draft expectations and, you know, how to draft and why Bajon Robinson is just, you know, the sh best, best draft pick ever. Because uh, I don't, I can't remember if I'm allowed to swear on a DLF podcast anymore. I'd like to make Zach Reed proud. He literally an English major, and I think he's been enjoying the recent change on the crossroads of doing these other week episodes where I tried to do this. Um, but I can't. Uh, the truth is, I'm a heathen, and while I have forced myself to read many great books in my time, many of which. Uh, are on the bookshelf that everyone comments on on YouTube videos. Uh, most of those shelves are populated by Douglas Adams and things that make me laugh because I'm a he I'm un uncultured. No matter how hard I tried in college to keep up with the smart, intelligent people around me who read Crime and Punishment where in, in like primary school or whatever, yeah, I, I did not enjoy Crime and Punishment. I, I read it because I had to. Uh, Tolstoy, on the other hand, yeah, enjoyed. But that's besides the point. I mostly enjoy what either were at the time considered trash or are considered trash now. <laughs> I like what I like and I've learned to live with that. And so I can't really connect or really explain great expectations. But I do know some things about it. And so I keep think, trying to think of a way to twist what I know around to the draft. And what follows, theoretically, is going to be me attempting to combine the two in a off-handed, off-the-cuff manner, as is my want. So if you stuck with me this far into it, maybe you'll stick with me a little further. I will mention Iron Man if it helps. I think, I think that's where we're going. Great Expectations, a story about Pip, right? Uh, I, I can't do Charles Dickens. I don't like Charles Dickens. That's where we're starting. I mean, I, I have never... Thor I never thoroughly enjoyed reading Charles Dickens. I was more of an Oscar Wilde fan because I liked trying to find someone that was contrary and also considered a great author from a similar period. Um, and I do, but I don't really like reading plays. And that was kind of just me trying to be a contrary little 20-year-old, to be honest with you, to say I prefer Oscar Wilde. I would say that his collections of short stories, specifically for children, still move me, to be honest. If you're interested in reading Oscar Wilde, because you've heard the hype, but you're not going to get sucked into another read it because it's this name. Read, read his short stories for children. If you've watched the Futurama episode, Jurassic Bark, and you're still, you know, ha you're still not crying, um, prepare yourself for that. Every single one of them has that effect on me. Um, and they're all, frankly, in some way, that level of depressing. And if you don't know the episode I'm talking about for Futurama, don't, don't, don't find out. And don't read those short stories because your life's better right now. And you don't need that level of sorrow and despair in your life. But that's Oscar Wilde. Those short stories were significantly um, effective on me rather than most of the great novels I was forced to read. I am an English schoolchild. Or, no, wait. I am an Englishman who was once a schoolchild who did spend hours in a classroom being forced to read A Midsummer Night's Dream trying to find a single... Dang joke. 
Okay, I th like I know the pain of reading the great English authors and realizing I'm I'm probably just too stupid. I I don't know why these are great authors. I just need to tick the boxes to get my A or B, uh, and I I'll, I'll accept not understanding why Shakespeare. I didn't understand that Shakespeare was good until Baz Luhrmann made a film about Romeo and Juliet. That's me. Okay, I can't pretend to be a literary theory guy. I do like to read though. Why is all this relevant? It's not. I, I think I've, I've warned you thoroughly at this point that it's not. But it is, I think, kind of. Great Expectations is about a novel about an absolute prick. I'm sorry, Charles Dickens fans, but Pip is unlikable to the core. And I've, I, I, the older I get, the more willing I get to walk out of movies or put down books and never pick them up again if I'm not enjoying it. And a character I don't enjoy is just shit, like lock stock, I will walk out and stop reading or whatever I have to do because why? Why am I putting myself through this? And it's not like a character has to be good. It's just I have to connect with them. I have to like them. I have to enjoy them. Could you make them funny? That's normally what gets me into it, right? I have to have a sense of humor. And despite the fact there is one Charles Dickens quote that I do remember, because it's one of the few times in school where I was like, okay, this guy isn't all bad, but it's from the Pickwick Papers when Charles Dickens wrote, quote, there are very few moments in a man's existence when he experiences so ludicrous a distress or meets with so little charitable commiseration, from memory this is tough, as when he is in pursuit of his own hat. Because that could be a Douglas Adams line right there. And I was like, okay, I kind of get this bit. But that's that's really all the Charles Dickens I cared about. And Pip is smug, and he desires to be something that even Charles Dickens, the author, tends to spend most of his time, you know, demonizing the industrialism, the, uh, the low work ethic, high expectation. Um, from the world, they expect a lot and put nothing into it. They have an expectation of being treated as superior with no belief that the world should have ex any expectation from them. It's, it's, it's a class struggle between the poor and the working class and the rich and the foppish. That's not Charles Dickens, and yet Pip desires to be that. And he spends a great deal of the majority of the, the middle of the book being that. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I had to read, and you probably did too if you ever came across it in school, about how London was a prison. And outside the solid, real relationships he had with Joe, the blacksmith, where they were real and fortune family, he found himself adrift and unable to use his will to accomplish the things he wanted. And honestly, I'm falling asleep just thinking about it, so I'm not going to re render it into a Dynasty podcast for you. Pip is unlikable. Not because he's an unlikable person, but I think because he's attempting, his desire is to be a thing that we do not think people should desire to be. So why is Iron Man likable? I know, bit of a segue there, and a whole hell of a long way away from Dynasty, but I really think I'm getting there. And we have some ADP to cover. The Iron Man desires to be something that we don't think you should want to be, and fails. It's the anti-hero, right? But it's even simpler than all that type of talk that we could go down, Iron Man is flawed, sure. He wants to be something that we think is evil, but fails because he's actually better. And we just kind of like that. It's a character you connect with. He's trying to be authentically himself, in other words. Whereas Pip is trying to be authentically someone else that we despise. 
that reminds me that when you read Charles Dickens, you have expectations of greatness and you go looking for it. And I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there. I don't get at me literary heads. But I don't enjoy it because I don't like Pip. I find him foppish. I find his desires and goals flawed. And I think at his core, he is someone I just don't think is particularly worth this many words spent on him, which is interesting because the other reason Great Expectations is probably simpler than most people would have you believe is I think it's a commentary on his own biography. The biography, the self-autobiography, or the, the, the book that Charles Dickens wrote that is meant to be a, a rendition of his life, a telling of how he came from nothing to be something, is David Copperfield, published in... I'm going to look that up, because I actually don't remember the year. He was 37 or so at the time. Yeah, 1849. That's meant to be a self-autobiography. Great Expectations is written in, I can see it right here, 1860, which makes him 10 years older in his late 40s or so. And to me, that clears up some of the flaws. I honestly remember from the book which is that the author it's it, if you've never read it it's a book told in first person but obviously it's not meant to be first person this isn't an autobiography but it seems to switch tenses from being pip as a young man telling the story in first person to pip as an old man telling the story in first person but there's a third voice in there occasionally which actually creates some noticeable you know discontinuity of the reader for me like it kept shaking me out of it until i think i realized that was older charles dickens commenting on a very similar story in david copperfield of a young man wanting to and coming from nothing to be something now i i think there's more nuance to the simpler understanding of great expectations it's not this great english novel but an older man looking back at a 37-year-old version of himself looking back at a younger version of himself and thinking, this story's not over yet. Back to Iron Man, and Thanos for that matter. Why do we enjoy some characters and not others? It's not about whether they're good people or we enjoy them. It's something, I'm sure, much more complicated. I think between Heath Ledger's Joker and Tony Stark's Iron Man, we come to some understanding of what we enjoy about some stories, some narratives about what people are, what people aren't, and why we don't like some others, even though we can draw similar parallels, even though some people that we like aren't trying to do good things, and some people we don't like are trying to do good things. And that actually does dovetail back to the draft. We are making narratives about players right now that will follow them for the rest of their career if you don't Bear in mind the great expectations tragedy of draft analysis. Kyler Murray finished in the top 12 for the first three years of his career. Last year, he finished in the top 12 in points per game, but outside the top 12 because he got hurt. Everyone's been ready to give up on Kyler Murray forever, and it's not because he's short. It's because the type of narrative that fed into Kyler Murray being short and therefore not being able to succeed wasn't the type of narrative we want to get behind. It's not our hero narrative. Instead, that's Josh Allen. Why? Again, it's not because ultimately they don't want to become things that we consider to be good or worthy a good quarterback for a long period of time. It's not because Kyler Murray plays video games. That just feeds into a broader reason why we do and don't like some narratives. But it is because we do like some narratives and we don't like other narratives in the same way that we like the Joker and we like Tony Stark, despite the fact they're trying to become two opposite things in terms of Josh Allen did not become a better passer in the NFL. He did advance to a rate that we'd never seen before, but a lot of it's explained by the receiving talent like Stefan Diggs being placed around him. He has definitely improved. I'm not saying he's going to regress, but he's still a top 
the top QB in Dynasty for several years because of his legs, not because of his passing. Kyler Murray did it by passing, and so he became it by breaking what we said he couldn't do. And so did Josh Allen, and yet we're immediately ready, we've been ready to give up on Kyler Murray pretty much from the get-go, whereas Josh Allen isn't. Now this isn't, although I do think we should be breaking trying to get Kyler Murray in Dynasty, this is more about we lose our narratives and we keep them. They stay within the they stay within our understanding of who players are and aren't for decades, especially if they're a quarterback afterwards, even if we don't realize it. We should be careful about the narratives we spin at the draft because they're going to continue to influence who increases in value when they do and who maintains or merely maintains value when they do do something great. Some are pips and they're just fundamentally unlikable, whether I can explain exactly why or not. And some are Iron Man or the Joker, when he's played by Heath Ledger, at least, who, no matter what, we fundamentally like that character. And so we interpret it in a different way, even if it's the same goal or the same result. I also think it's fundamentally why I don't connect with, understand, or respect hit rate analysis and why most of my hit rate content, I went back and looked over some of it while I was writing the ADP hit rate for this and DLF and also my Patreon article and even that YouTube video that I broke down a little while ago. Hit rates are narrative supporters, not things used to create great or poor expectations for that matter. Well, let's actually look at some. Finally, if you made it 23 minutes in, I'll actually tell you some stuff you might be interested in. How about that? Since 2014 to 2021, looking at one QP ADP, because I've got that for longer, and Superflex ADP only goes to 2018, so it's just it's just not enough for me. I like to get a meaty sample when I can, and 2014 will do. 100% of quarterbacks drafted in the first round, and there have only been two, have hit for at least one top 12 season. Both of those quarterbacks, Kyler Murray and Trevor Lawrence, have had top 12 seasons, finally. You can see how the narrative fits into both of their arcs right now. But 45% of running backs drafted in the first round have hit for a top 12 season, so less than a 50-50 shot, or if you like, 5 out of 10 haven't. 34% of wide receivers have hit for a top 12 season. Both of those samples are decent. They are meaty. 42 running backs drafted, 37 wide receivers drafted. And to answer the unanswered, the unasked question, sorry. Yeah, we do tend to lean more heavily wide receiver. There are more draft classes where we draft more wide receivers and running backs within the first 12 picks. If you're interested in any of this without the Charles Dickens rant at the start, you can just go read my DLF article, which was recently published. And I put some of the takeaways on the graphs and the tables up on Patreon as well. So you can check them out there. And I can already hear a lot of you turning off to go do that. I don't blame you at all. How does this connect back to narratives? This does not mean 45 to 34% that you draft running backs. You do break ties towards running backs because of other trends we've talked about and how we are more accurately ranking running backs. But if that hit rate says James Cook at the end of the first round was a better bet than say, I don't know, what wide receiver was falling to the end of the first round last year? Drake London, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave. I mean, there are a lot. Some, Christian Watson, that, that was probably it. Then it misled you. Also, because it's being used to bolster a narrative rather than being able to create an expectation that is reasonable based on history. We rank running backs more accurately, but that doesn't mean, looking at the average table, that you should break ties towards running back as a default. 
that's not an expectation. That's a support of a narrative specifically around James Cook, the one I've just mentioned. But you know, if you played Dynasty for any length of time, there's always a running back at the end of the first round that's largely getting bolstered by landing spot or the potential of what he could be and look at that hit rate. So let's dig a little, little deeper. And I actually went into this ADP a lot more in that other episode and in that article and on the thing on Patreon because, you know, I, I didn't write about Charles Dickens for 20 minutes. But if you break this down by draft class, we get more accurate in terms of hit rates when ADP leans heavily towards one position or another. Now, that's not to say that if this is draft class, and I will mention it, leans towards one position or the other, that means then you can employ narrative strategies to just go draft them James Cookses or those Christian Watsons for that matter. Instead, what it suggests is when a draft class is heavily centered around a position, ADP can tell us that. That's the expectation it can set for us. In 2017, seven of the first eight picks in ADP, the first eight rookies taken in overall ADP, were running backs. And we hit 85% of them for at least one top 12 season. Is that because that was a great draft class? Yes. But that's also an expectation we could have had because ADP was telling us it was a great draft class. See the difference about bolstering an expectation and setting an expectation? Hopefully, I'm getting there somehow, or at least the way it enters my head might help it enter your head. When ADP leans heavily in one direction, it tells us something, not necessarily about any one particular player. That's the difficult part. When you want a decent meaty sample to help you lead into expectations, it tells you nothing about an individual player, and that never seems to be applied accurately when it terms as hit rates, because that doesn't get clicks. Honestly, I hate to keep complaining about that, but content that slaps, content that bolsters a brand and gets shared and gets viewed needs to slap. What does that mean? Damn it, I can dig a little bit further, but that's really the problem. It can't have much meaning in terms of an individual actionable decision, but it can have some. This year's rookie ADP. There's a clear top four players in this year's rookie draft. Bajon Robinson, Jackson Smith, Nijuga, Jameer Gibbs, and Jordan Addison. There is almost no discrepancy in those four players across the 10 DLF rookie mocks or any of the DLF rookie rankers, which are an entirely separate group. If you don't know how ADP or ranks work on DLF, different people sign up to do different kinds of rankings. So the rookie ranks are specifically about rookies. They're just, uh, I think it's eight different DLF uh, analysts who rank rookies one to whatever. Um, and that's the DLF rookie rankers. I'm not actually one of the rookie rankers, even though I rank rookies, is essentially what I'm saying. But between those eight rankers and those 10 DLF marks, the first three, Bajon Robinson, Jackson Smith, Njigba, and Jameer Gibbs in one QB, are locked in. There's maybe one person who drafts them somewhat one particular player outside the top four for each individual player, but one person out of eight or one draft out of 10, barely any disparity. It's not enough to believe that any of those four players are going to drop. Now, any of those three players. That fourth player, Jordan Anderson, does have a little bit more discrepancy. There are maybe two rankers and three mocks who drafted him out of the top four, for example. But that's not even that is particularly meaningful. Those four players are fairly locked in. And while everything is NFL draft dependent, you should not expect them to fall is one expectation we could set in our draft class. To do a better expectation, you should be trying to trade up for those four players. That's what ADP is telling us. It's not telling us to draft running backs this year. It's not telling us to draft wide receivers this year, even though there are slightly more wide receivers being drafted in the first 12 picks and ranked in the first 12 ranks. 
them running backs, that's kind of, that happens more often. It's dynasty, we lean towards wide receiver. It's a fairly easy balance. The other thing it's telling us is it does not like the running backs in this draft class. Not that they're not good. Don't apply it to individual narratives. But within the first, uh, I'm going to have to look because I don't remember it off the top of my head. Within the first six picks of the second round or rookie 13 to rookie 24, four running backs are drafted. So while ADP fades the running back position, especially towards the back end, outside of Gibson and Bijan Robinson, and it fades running backs, in the second round, it drafts them very heavily and very quickly. And it ranks them very heavily and very quickly in the rank 13 to 14. That's common with both ranks and DLF ADP, although there is disparity between the two. Between, you know, exactly where they're ranked and exactly where they're drafted, there is some discrepancy there, which I'll get to the one player that particularly stands out in that regard um, in a second. But that's what I think we can take as an expectation. There are four players in this draft class, there are four picks in a 1QB league you should be trying to trade into because they represent different level of prospect. Now, I actually, I think we already know that Jackson Smith and Jigger uh, is a very different prospect from Jordan Addison in terms of likely expectation. But Jordan Addison is very close behind relative to this draft class in terms of how interested you should be in trading into that spot. And Bajon Robinson is above the class proper. Like, it's significant that there is as little discrepancy in Bajon Robinson's number one rank as Jameer Gibbs' number three rank. Bajon Robinson is in himself a different tier according to ADP, but everyone already knows that, so I didn't want to belabor that point too long. After that, it's kind of wild season, and we can draw different tiers, and different people have different tiers within their own ranks, but it leans heavily wide receiver, and interestingly, to go back to quarterback for a second, it goes back to quarterback really quickly. Those two quarterbacks that I mentioned, Trevor Lawrence and Kyler Murray, who were drafted within the first 12 rookie ranks of their individual draft, were both ranked inside the top 12, but neither of them were ranked inside the top 10 in 1QB ADP. This year, there are two quarterbacks inside the top 10 picks. That's significant. It's not telling you Anthony Richardson is a sure thing because we're not trying to bolster a narrative, but it is telling us that this year, both ranks, if anything, ranks are more in on this trend, by the way, that the quarterbacks become intensely more interesting in this year's draft class. Now, is that a result of a fading of the running backs or a bolstering of the quarterbacks? I know, discuss, argue. We can get on a podcast together and argue it out. But it is saying that the quarterback position is uniquely, compared to other draft classes, this is what stands out the most, to me at least, it's not that tier four, it's not Bajon Robinson, even though he is the most important, especially in 1QB ADP. It's that quarterbacks become intensely more interesting in this draft class. Going back to 2017 and the lessons, setting expectations instead of bolstering narratives, is that ADP should be able to tell us where this draft class is centered around. And I think, and again, I'm making assumptions and I'm making great expectations, should I say, of my own by looking at this ADP. So go look at the tables, go look at the history in my database or on DLF and consider it for yourself. But I do think this ADP, as an expectation, is telling us to be more interested in the quarterback position than we typically are, even in 1QB drafts. And there's also a lot of wide receivers that, you know, again, Zay Flowers and Quinton Johnson are in here above the quarterbacks. Josh Downs, who I like a lot, is above the quarterbacks. Don't draft the quarterbacks above other players that you like necessarily, but ADP is telling us to set an expectation that a lot of the fantasy value from this draft class may well be the quarterback position, and in fact the tight end position. 
while there's only one tight end being drafted above the running backs that I was just talking about being faded, Michael Mayer right now is the first pick in the second round, on average according to DLF ADP, across those top 10 mocks. And ranks mostly agree with that, having him 14th overall. There's relatively little discrepancy there. And it's interesting that a tight end who I'm not overly excited about, but is a really solid profile. Like, I'm not surprised if he's Austin Hooper or Noah Fant uh, at all, Jason Witten for a decade, um, in Michael Meyer. And even he and a third quarterback being drafted very early in the second round, the second pick overall, is being drafted above that thick and likely very significant fantasy running back group. That doesn't mean you don't want Tajay Spears or Tank Bigsby. I want Tank. I want two Tanks on my team this year. Make it happen. One of them's Tank Bigsby. Doesn't mean they're less fantasy viable or less likely to hit. So we're not trying to bolster those narratives. But ADP is telling us we should be more interested in the onesie positions even before getting into the thick of it with running backs outside a significant few at the top. Telling us it's top heavy. It's telling us to be more interested in the maybe shorter positional advantage of quarterback and tight end but the more common hit rates of those positions when drafted early in DLF ADP. I'm Roshan Johnson and Isaiah Abanakanda. We can have fun arguing about those all day towards the end of the second round. Dalton Kincaid is the second tight end drafted in the middle of the second round after that running back group which again I think is significant to how important or how interested in the tight end position this year ADP actually is. And to bring this back somewhat to some kind of actionable content, to give you a name to say, hey, you said this guy was high because Marvin Mims is the most disproportionately ranked player in this year's draft class compared to ADP. Now again, there are discrepancies across the board. Devon A-Chain, for example, he's ranked 11th by ADP and 9th by rankers. So rankers... Just making a simple assumption that ranks made by analysts are meant to be better than the average, not that we always achieve that, then David A. Chain is probably more valuable or a better target. But it's marginal. 11th to 9th, Bryce Young is ranked as a 14th overall pick in ADP and the 13th overall pick in ranks. That's different and significantly, again, drafting a quarterback above those running backs is interesting. And it's more interesting that the rankers like him as a second overall quarterback, whereas ADP ranks him as a third overall quarterback. But it's not so significant you want to move mountains to make sure you get in the range, right? Kenny McIntosh is drafted as a 34th overall in ranks, the DLF rankers, but the 41st in overall ADP, suggesting that rankers like him at the early, whereas ADP is letting him fall a little bit. That's interesting, but when you're talking about a third or fourth round pick, It's a little hard to get overly excited relative to a first-round pick. Well, I already said it. There's only one player who has an entire round difference in terms of ranks and ADP. And not just a round, but the first to the second. Putting him in the first overall round instead of the second overall round is the most significant change we could see. And that's Marvin Mims. He's ranked 21st overall in ADP. He's ranked 11th overall in DLF ranks. The rankers, who again, simple assumption is if they're doing a good job, they are more in tuned and they're going to do a better job of predicting who's more valuable at position and also in general, say that Marvin Mims is the most significantly undervalued wide receiver in this class. For my own part, I think they're right. Marvin Mims is significantly undervalued. His prospect profile is pretty close in terms of how well he did at the role he played in college to Jordan Addison and Josh Downs, who I like a lot and I like more. Now, Marvin Mims, to me, profiles as like a really good 
DJ Chark in terms of fantasy expectations, someone who had a top 24 season and actually had really early draft capital, and but failed to has failed to sustain significant volume to repeatedly put up that level of performance. Someone I think has demonstrated that is more Josh Downs, but Marvin Min's profile, how productive he was in college at it, is easily similar to that level of how good they were at doing their role. So I think being drafted at the end of the second round is definitely an undervaluation, as long as you understand that that expectation at the end of the first round is more a good DJ Chark, not a high-level Amon Ross St. Brown. But again, I could be wrong, and I've made a whole bunch of different level of expectations and assumptions in profiling Marvin Mims. I nearly said DJ Chark, but it's Marvin Mims. And he's definitely going at a value. So he's someone we should probably target in a rookie drafts more broadly. Not that you have to draft him at the end of the first round, because we're not bolstering a narrative, but we are more interested in... Anyway, if you're interested in that table of who's most misranked by DLF, again, that's on my Patreon, that's in my DLF article, uh, or the ADP is on DLF. I write up this series looking at ranks versus ADP every week for DLF, and this week, since the NFL draft is literally here, I thought I'd focus on rookies and the history of rookie ADP instead of ranks. Um, right now, I thought, an ADP right now, I thought I'd dig back into the history of ADP. And uh, again, when I went to post it, I just decided it was boring and me just reading a thing that you can go read. Um, and so hopefully the color at the start and me ranting about Charles Dickens and trying to bend it around to narratives and how they can bolster what we think of players and that can follow us and make us make worse decisions, as I think we sometimes do, based on the characters or the storylines we like even though, as in the case of Charles Dickens, even if it was semi-self-autobiographical, they are fictional stories. The one thing to remember is you actually don't know their hero's journey. And yes, there's also a German word that describes the coming-of-age story that Charles Dickens was, but I, 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 but I didn't want to try and pronounce it, and I know Zach Reed somewhere is currently saying it to himself quietly, with that cheeky, smug little grin on his face. So, you know, feel pretty good for him. Hopefully this wasn't a bad idea to delete a straight reading of DLF ADP and insert some color. Unless he does come back to me when I think about all the narratives that get spun and woven about these players who we never know. And I say it that way because I don't think we should expect to know them. They're, they're people. We shouldn't have that much involvement in their lives or that detailed knowledge of who they are. Even if it is fun to make up stories about who they are and who's overcoming obstacles and who is not and who's overcoming the right obstacles and who is not. If we're going to make good dynasty decisions just in terms of beating our friends, it's okay every now and again to step back and say, it doesn't matter if I like Pip, he's still a classic. That feels like an outro. I'm going to go with it. And, um, thanks for listening to the podcast. Yeah. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the play, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that. Picking their brains, got different lanes, but I like that. Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats. Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight back and forth. There is no order, they disorder more and more because the players ain't no older. They some hoarders or some mortars, dropping bombs without no borders. They got that, I, I like mortar. Peak grinding numbers like molars, I don't know anymore. I am at a crossroads. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the plays, no. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. 
clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so Jake on the table and they on the play, so Pete and Numo, it's the plays, they're analytical